Hello and welcome to Connected, episode 84. Connected this week is brought to you by our friends at Smile and Ministry of Supply. My name is Stephen Hackett and I am joined this week by Mr. Federico Vitici. Hello, Stephen. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm doing great, but we're missing again a piece. Uh, you know, Mike is not here today. Mike is not here today. Mike had a little time off, uh, but he will be back uh, next week. The truth is, actually, uh, Mike actually went to, to Romania, but he didn't know how to come back. So we're not sure where, when, when Mike will be back, if he will be back, but uh, we have a show to, to do, Stephen. The show must go on, as they say. Yes, even without Mike, it's the asterisk on, on the Queen song, actually. But, you know. <laughs> and our show starts with follow-up. <laughs> so we are going to jump right in. We got a lot of feedback about our comments last week concerning the 9.7-inch iPad Pro and the feeling that maybe somehow, as the three of us own 12.9-inch iPad Pros, that we were upset that Apple had put some new things um, in uh, in this new smaller iPad. And I just kind of wanted to touch on that again for a second. And I think there is, um, I'll just speak for myself, like it is always frustrating if you make a purchase and you know something comes along a little bit later that uh, is newer shinier right the nerd and all of us gets upset about mm. that but i think it's just particularly weird um this time that they're so close together and the apple is basically selling these as a larger and smaller version of the same thing and um you know whatever reasons that exist for these two devices being a little bit different. And we, we went over some of those possible reasons last week. It's just always sort of an uncomfortable position to be in. I, for one, am not like super upset about it. I understand it's the way it works. It would be nice to have those things, but I, I figure my next 12.9-inch iPad will have those things. And so uh, it's not keeping me up at night. What about you? I mean, yeah, it is. I would say it is strange when... You just bought a new device and then like five months later, uh, a new version comes out and it's got a bunch of features uh, that you don't have. But I'm not really upset personally uh, because the features that are on the new 9.7 inch iPad Pro, I don't really care about. You know, I don't take pictures with my iPad except, you know, the occasional selfie. Uh, I don't particularly care about the true tone display. I mean, of course, if the next bigger iPad Pro has a true tone display, I'm going to be happy, but it's just I'm not really upset right now. Uh, And I feel like my initial judgment, uh, you know, of the day of the event when I said uh, the iPad Pro has, you know, things like more RAM, faster charging, those are the things I care about. So, it is strange that a new iPad has these new features, but it also makes sense, you know, it's coming out later. Maybe they weren't ready. Maybe they only make sense for a more portable iPad, but I'm not really upset right now. I'm still super, super happy with my 12.9-inch iPad Pro. So, yeah. Yeah, me too. I spent some time, we have a, an Air 2 in the house, and I spent some time with it over the weekend just to sort of clarify my thoughts on the two different sizes. And no doubt using the 12.9-inch makes the 9.7 feel smaller, right? Like the same way you use a 6S or 6S Plus, and then you go back to something like you know, that 4-inch size, and everything just feels cramped and small. But for me, the, really, the kicker continues to be the multitasking, where you can have a lot bigger view into apps on the larger iPad, um, which I think is is really, like, like I said last week, I think it really has a sort of unlock something about the way that I treat iOS. Yeah, you know, I went through this when I was reviewing the iPad Pro last year. Uh, split view, going back to the iPad R2, uh, trying to use split view on the smaller iPad and the bigger iPad, there's really no contest for me. I generally appreciate split view more on the on the bigger iPad Pro, not because it's more comfortable. Uh, well, I mean, also because of that, but just because you see more, you know, you see more content, you see more text when I'm writing, uh, I see bigger lists, you know, uh, so it's a, it's a matter of comfort, like physical comfort of viewing two apps at the same time, but also content, more content shown at once. And for me, that's more important than, you know, a better, a better camera or a true tone display. Yeah, it's it's something to um, like to consider, I think, if you're especially if you're looking to do work uh, on iOS. 
something too I want to touch on was the LTE thing. You know, in the um, with the big iPad Pro, LTE is only available on the biggest model, the most expensive model, which is the one I got because I wanted LTE. But on the 9.7 inch, it's available at all sizes, like it's been historically. And I, I just wonder, you know, sometimes Apple does these sort of things, and it's a bit of a uh, a bit of a statement, right? That um, this is the way we want you to use it. And I wonder if the statement here is the um, 12.9 inch is sort of for like working at a desk or in an office, and the 9.7 inch is portable where you may need LTE more. Um, uh, does that does that ring a ring a bell with you? It does, and I I feel like. Apple wants to sort of uh, leave this message out in the world right now that, you know, the the smaller iPad is meant for, like, portable scenarios, like you're walking around, you want to you want to hold the iPad with one hand, whereas the, the iPad Pro, uh, you know, the 12.9 inch is more of an office-like iPad. And, it, again, it depends on, you know, many variables, like uh, how do you use your iPad or how big are your hands? Uh, because I can walk around holding my my big iPad Pro with no problem, but it sort of makes sense for Apple to to have this kind of message. Uh, you know, we have some new features, but we don't really want to tell you that they're not available on the bigger iPad Pro because you know we want to make money in in some different way with the smaller iPad Pro or because they weren't ready. We want to we want you to believe that it's because you know this makes sense on a portable device. Um, that's marketing, you know, and that's okay. Um, but I feel like people who are in the market for for an iPad, and according to Apple, that's people coming from a PC. Uh, if you if you look at the if you look at the iPad Pro webpage, uh, they don't really tell you we want you to stop using a Mac. They're just you know sort of pushing the iPad Pro to PC people, um, and it makes sense to come up with these marketing strategies. Uh, but again, you know, I I I work better. I feel like on the on the bigger iPad Pro. Yep, t- totally, totally the same thing here. Um, so, the, of course, the other device announced was the iPhone SE. We we spoke about it at length last week, and really in the weeks leading up to this, that at least in my household, uh, an iPhone SE was going to be ordered, and it has been ordered. Um, one thing I think we sort of skipped over a little bit in our discussion last week was the price. Um, so I generally buy iPhones, like the SIM-free version, basically it's unlocked to bring your own SIM card. and the SE added the 64 gigabyte model for my wife, and it was 499 bucks. And for someone who has bought uh, high-end iPhones unlocked for a long time, it's really seemed like I double-checked that I was buying the unlocked version. Um, if you're still on a two-year contract, even though I know that is fading away in the in the states, this is now the free phone. And if you buy it, it unlocked, it starts at 399, where the success starts at 649. And and that just sort of brings up those memories of the the iPhone five C, right? That people thought the five C uh, was going to be the cheap phone. In reality, it was just a repackaged iPhone five, and um, didn't I think by all uh, accounts didn't really move in the volume that Apple uh, had planned or wanted it to. And I just wonder if the SE is is part of the SE is a crack at that again to see. Can we put a good phone at a lower price point? And really, you know, the SE at three ninety nine is better than the iPhone six, which is in the middle price slot in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, I think the five C sort of failed for a couple of reasons. Maybe people realized that it was old tech and they didn't want that, and that it it looked you could you could look at it until it was cheap. And the worst thing you could say about the SE is that you look at it and think that maybe it was old. And I, I just wonder if people see that as a distinction that uh, you know. The if you had a, a bright yellow plastic 5C, it kind of screamed that you bought you know the cheaper phone, and maybe if you see an SE, it's, oh, you bought the expensive one, but years ago. Like, I wonder if people think that, but either way, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the iPhone SE does sales-wise because of that price point. Is that going to bring new people to the iPhone? Is it going to, obviously, it's going to take their, their average selling price down a little bit, I think. Um but I can't help but think that this is like another stab at making mm-hmm. the iPhone more affordable for more people. It seems to me like it's a better executed strategy than the 5C. Uh, you know, not just because of the design, that it looks more sort of evergreen, 
like a classic design from Apple uh, that a lot of people prefer uh, in terms of uh, industrial design to the to the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 6s, but also because of the um, you know how it's marketed to people. It's modern technology with the exception of 3D Touch. So it's really the latest iPhone in a more compact package at a much cheaper price. And it looks to me like they they have learned from the iPhone 5C. Uh, and even the name, you know, it, it rings more classic. It's like an iPhone special edition. It's more... Uh, it, it, I, I have the impression that it's going to last more um, you know, than the iPhone, iPhone 5C, which was like a weird spin-off on the iPhone 5, uh, and it looked kind of toyish, you know, with the colors. And I do see a lot of iPhone 5Cs out, out in the world. I, You know, I don't have numbers. We don't have numbers about the iPhone 5C. But I feel like the iPhone uh, SE, it's, uh, it's an overall better take on having a cheaper iPhone with new technology, with, you know, uh, the, the current camera, the current LTE technology, Touch ID, no 3D Touch, but, you know, for a lot of people, that's not going to be a big deal. Um, I feel like, and this is totally my <laughs> non, uh, the, the opinion of a non-analyst, for sure, uh, but it looks like a better strategy going forward. Yeah, I, um, I think so, too. I wonder if, like how that time frame is going to roll out. Like I don't think this is going to be something that is um that is updated uh, every year. You know, is this going to be something that it's mm-hmm. it's current now, but by the time a refresh comes around, it's going to be old? Or is even they talked about this on the talk show a little bit this week? Is this even like a one off? And is it to sort of bridge the gap until people are really okay with with bigger phones? Like it's just it's just unknown, right? This is new territory for the um for the iPhone line. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, I, I know that um that my wife's excited to get. It. I know a lot of people are and I think it'll do well. Um but uh I guess we'll just have to see what they do over the long term with it to kind of yeah. see what lessons are to be learned. Yeah. Uh so up next uh talking about the um the Apple uh watch um the new nylon band. Mm-hmm. And um, so I picked one up this weekend. The um, The Memphis Apple Store actually just reopened. They uh, had a big renovation, kind of first of its kind uh, here in the States. But um, so I wanted to go check that out. And then I ended up picking up uh, one of the nylon watch bands. And I I picked up the, um, the black and gray one. And I know other people have said this, but they really do look better in person than on the website. On the yeah. website, they look like sort of uncanny valleys and somehow but um yeah they, they looked kind of ugly to me then i went to check them out in in a, in a store and they're you know some colors are actually quite nice yeah you know the colors necessarily aren't my personal taste um but i think that they are going to prove to be um prove to be popular um, but i gotta say it is uh, an extremely comfortable watch band the um into the sport band, which I like and own several of, and I have been wearing my my Apple Watch a little bit again recently. We could talk about that at some point, but uh, this breathes much better than the sport band. So, like yesterday, I did some, I like mowed the grass and some yard work. And normally, like the inside of my sport band and the inside of my watch would just be really wet from like being sweaty. And the nylon band does a much better job at sort of, uh, I guess, that is absorbing part of that. So, I guess that's kind of gross, but um, it's like much cooler to wear if that makes sense. And um, so far, I'm a big fan of it. It's it's well done. It you know it definitely is not like the NATO style, like was rumored. It is just a nylon watch band. But um, so far, two thumbs up for me. Yeah, I think I'm I'm gonna get one for the summer. It looks like a like a summer band to me. You know. Yeah. I think I'm gonna yeah. get one. So you know, and I like that they're doing uh, new stuff here. You know, they've um. Uh, pretty consistently every six months or so they've had new colors and new options and i think that's going to be a big part of their strategy moving forward to help keep the um help keep the thing fresh in between um big like product cycle release type things i wonder if there's someone as crazy as you who's going to collect all of the apple watch bands Uh, there there has to be someone it's mike (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah you're right yeah, sometimes I have that thought of like, I've, I even have like a, I need to pick it back up. I used to have a series on 512 of like things that I would bet would become 
collectible in the future. And the best part of that as a topic is no one can prove me wrong for like 10 years. But um, uh, sometimes I think about that, like, uh, like I kind of wish that I had kept my first iPhone and I didn't. For a long time, I needed to sell it to Bankwell, the next one. And so now I'm just now kind of like, maybe I should pick up an iPhone, you know, like the original 2G iPhone. But uh, I don't know if watch bands are going to be one of those things or not, honestly. My guess is probably not. But uh, you're talking to somebody who owns every color of iPod socks. So what do yeah. I know? Never say never, Steven. That's right. Uh, so Federico, what's going on with the FBI? Well, last night, the FBI officially dropped their case against Apple, you know, in the San Bernardino uh, shooting uh, with the iPhone belonging to a terrorist. Uh, Apparently, the FBI managed to unlock the iPhone. Uh, They were requiring Apple's assistance to unlock the phone. Now the phone has been unlocked. We don't know how. Uh, So the FBI uh, didn't provide any details as to whether uh, you know, just what kind of tool uh, a third party uh, apparently, you know, uh, gave the FBI to access the contents of the iPhone. Uh, they just, you know, uh, they agreed to vacate the order uh, again, you know, against Apple too. They were requiring Apple to help the FBI in assisting, uh, you know, in this uh, iPhone unlock process. Now the case is gone for now. Uh, so it's, it, it is over, you know, what quote unquote over. Uh, because the general feeling is that sooner or later there's going to be another case and the FBI is going to try again to compel Apple to, you know, create a version of iOS with uh, a backdoor, essentially, uh, that would allow the FBI to bypass the uh, four-digit passcode, uh, just any passcode check that iOS has in place to uh, prevent people from getting into a locked iPhone. So we don't know what's going to happen in the future. For now, this specific case has been dropped, so... You could ascribe that as a win for Apple, but it's not really a win for Apple. It's just maybe a pause in a in a in a debate that's going to continue in the in the in the next few years, I guess. Yeah, I have the same feeling you do that this particular case is over, but this is not over, right? That I think now that this door has been opened, the, the possibility to try to go after Apple or or other companies, right? This doesn't just have to be Apple that this sort of door can't be closed and that at some point something terrible is going to happen and this is going to come come back up. I mean, there's a lot of, like, debate over what really happened, right? So, like, did the FBI really unlock it? They said in court they did, so I'll take them at their word that they did. Um, I assume that they either did it, you know, through something the NSA had or or maybe they said you know, we're going to go ahead and brute force it and just uh, risk, I guess, that the delete files after 10 attempts is turned off. I don't really know. Um, they're obviously not going to be a real forthcoming with that. But while it is a victory today, uh, it sort of feels like, well, that's like the first battle, but there's still a war coming over encryption. And, you know, Apple from the beginning has said this should be decided by the people. This should be not done in the court, right? Should go through the 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 uh, lawmaking process. That there should be a law that talks about this, because the law that was used in this case is ancient and very vague in a lot of areas. And because there is no legislation here in the United States that really deals with this in a proper modern way, and so I wonder if that's how we're going to see this unfold next. That someone is going to introduce legislation either for or against Apple's stance, and um. So yeah, so I, I don't think this whole idea of like the government getting into encrypted phones is um is over quite yet, but it's over for now, I guess, and um I guess we'll see kind of where that goes. But um you know you got to think that uh, I hesitate to say this, but I think the FBI did a pretty good job at picking a case to bring this up, right? Like a lot of people in this country and around the world, um are willing to do things and make decisions based on terrorism that they wouldn't maybe otherwise. And that clearly is what the FBI was betting on, right? Like what happened to San Bernardino was heartbreaking. And I think they were trying to capitalize that. It's kind of too strongly worded, but they yeah. were trying to use that, right? It would, they're not going to choose like a bank getting robbed or someone's getting mugged to unlock an iPhone, right? They're going to do something big and they did and it didn't work. So it's just gonna be curious to see where this goes, and um, I guess I guess time will tell, like all things. But um, 
I'm not comfortable that the government's not going to ask for this again. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot, and uh, it's not that it's not that I don't understand the position of the government or you know uh, law enforcement because when something as terrible as you know the sunburn you know shooting happens, uh, I I do understand that you as law enforcement you want to be able to have measures to monitor bad people. You know, it, I mean, it makes sense that you want to be able to keep an eye on criminals. And living in Italy, I I see this on the news, sadly, very often. Uh, you know, we have the problem with many types of the mafia uh, in Italy. And you, when you turn on the news, you very regularly, you hear about, you know, law enforcement managing to capture a mafia boss. Uh, also because they were able to plant cameras or they were able to plant microphones inside the, you know, the, the, the home of a boss or, you know, the, the home of a group of people uh, related to, to a mafia association. And so I do understand why monitoring the bad guys is beneficial for the public. But it's quite different. I've been thinking about it. It's quite different to be able to say we're going to break into a home and we're going to plant microphones, we're going to plant cameras because we know that this person is a criminal and we want to keep an eye on them and we want to catch them in the act or we want to collect proof. It's quite different from doing that and having access to a device that is used by bad guys but that is also used by the majority of good people around the world so it's it's the main problem is we live in a different era you know we live in an era where our most private uh, and personal information is not confined in the in the walls of our houses but it's stored on a chip in a small device that we carry around all the time and so the ways that the the, the government and the law enforcement thinks about monitoring the bad guys are going to change uh, have already changed, and I do understand to an extent the struggle of law, inform- law enforcement and the government to say, why do these criminals use these devices to communicate, and why are we not able to monitor them? And the sad, and maybe just the reality is that the world has changed, and the way we communicate has changed, and I feel like it's a very dangerous precedent to be able to, especially after we saw what you know Snowden revealed about the NSA in the U.S. It's very dangerous to be able to say we want to create essentially a weapon that would enable us to to monitor everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it. The main problem is it's a different world for people, for criminals, for government, for law enforcement agencies. It's a different world. I don't know how this is gonna play out, but I do know that. At the very basic level, uh, at least personally, so this is my belief, is that people have a right to privacy, people have a right to digital security. And bypassing that, even if you say it's only for good intentions, but to create a tool that would you know, bypass that personal privacy, it's going to be messy because it's going to end up in the wrong hands. So, you know... It's a it's a very difficult problem to discuss, but I'm I'm sort of glad that we're having this discussion, uh, because I feel like setting aside this case, if Apple and the FBI and the U.S. government and you know other agencies in in Europe and around the world, if they can sit down, you know, uh, at a table and discuss what do we want to do here, I feel like as you know human beings, good people can find the solution. Maybe I'm too optimistic. I don't know. No, I think it is important because so many things in this era of um, uh, political, you know, the political climate, and America's been at war on terror for so long that so many things get decided privately and behind closed doors, where the public can't see into them, right? And so, for Apple and the FBI to do this publicly. Like, that was a choice on the FBI's part, right? There could have been gag orders. Or there could have been things put in place to keep this um, quiet. And the FBI decided to make it public, I think, in hopes to swing public opinion and, and that sort of thing. But it's, it's important that it's in public because it does affect every single one of us, right? If our phones are not secure and our phones have pictures of our family and our private emails and, you know, corporate secrets and bank account information and health information, right? Like all this stuff is on these devices. 
then everyone has the right to know whether the government or any other party can get into those. And so uh, while I, I disagree with the government's stance on this, I do have to say uh, at least it was in public this time. And that's um that's a nice change compared to some of these other things that that people have been um put through over the years. So, yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, we're gonna move on. Uh, but first, we'll take a quick break and tell you about our first sponsor this week, which is our awesome friends over at Smile. Now, Smile is the maker of a bunch of great Mac and iOS apps, but today we're gonna talk about PDF Pen Pro, the all-purpose PDF editing tool. You've heard us say that PDF Pen is the Swiss Army knife for PDFs. Well, PDF Pen Pro is the knife with so many tools it can barely fit in your pocket. It has everything you need. With PDF Pen Pro, you can add signatures, edit text and images, perform OCR on scanned documents, and even export into Microsoft Word format. We all have those people in our lives who just uh, need Office documents, and PDF Pen Pro can help you create them. But only with PDF Pen Pro can you create interactive PDF forms, build tables of content, set document permissions, and convert websites to multi-page PDFs. PDF Pen Pro 7 also allows you to export, like I said, to Microsoft Word, but also Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF archive formats. You can even add tooltips uh, to your PDFs for voiceover accessibility. And this list of features just goes on and on. This is a really powerful piece of software. You know, I deal with PDFs a lot at work. We have uh, contracts with our sponsors. We have documents with our hosts and and attorneys and uh, accountants. Lots of PDFs come across my desk every day. And I use PDF Pen Pro to deal with them and to to sign stuff and to edit things and mark things up and send them back to people. And it really is great. You can try a free demo of PDF Pen Pro 7 today by visiting smilesoftware.com slash connected. PDF Pen Pro 7 requires Yosemite or later and works great on OS X El Capitan. Thank you so much to Smile for sponsoring this show and all of Relay FM. So, uh, our friend Mike, who is, um, like we said, is off this week, uh, has been Sherlocked. Oh, okay. Is that why he, he flew to Romania? Yes, he needed to escape the Sherlocking. <laughs> so, this really interesting article is uh, came out in the New York Times a couple days ago, right? It's by Emily Steele, and it's it's one of those things where, like this is new Apple, but it's still sort of um, a little weird, right? Where Apple announced that they're going to work with uh, Will I Am of, of all mm-hmm. people and um, <laughs> a couple of TV executives on a new show that spotlights the app economy. Okay, basically, it's behind the app, but for TV and there's like quotes from Eddie Q like this is a very strange article right it's a very strange time to be I mean the idea of having a TV show about developers is both kind of awesome and scary at the same time because I wonder how that's gonna be like so the idea is that Apple is working with uh, Will I Am and uh, these two TV uh executives to put together a TV series about the App Store, about apps, and I assume about, you know, app makers. We don't know any more details about this. It's going to be on iTunes. This is going to be on the App Store as, like, videos that you can watch on the App Store. Uh, this is going to be on the web or YouTube. We don't know. Um, but but it, it is sort of interesting to me, if only for one reason. And the, that reason is... We, we've talked about this in the past. A lot of people, millions of people, I would, I would say, they believe that all the, the apps that they download from the App Store come from Apple, or maybe they come from people who work for Apple. And I see this all the time because whenever I say that I have a blog about you know, Apple News, uh, people tend to assume that I'm on Apple's payroll. You know, that sort of it's a blog by Apple. Mm -hmm. And I see the same assumption for apps and games. You know, it's on the App Store, so these people are paid by Apple. And then you have to, you know, download stuff from the App Store either for free or by paying Apple. A lot of people have no idea about the whole developer community, what WWDC is or means, what it means to be an iOS developer or a Mac developer. That's the joke from the Mac App Store. Um, 
I feel like it sort of makes sense to explain to Apple customers that the whole app economy is made by people who are not living in Cupertino, you know, or don't work for Apple. But my concern is, is this going to be one of those, you know, like a couple of episodes about high-profile developers like the folks at Adobe, at Microsoft, and, you know, is this going to be an indie type of show? Uh, you know, like, uh, what's the name of the documentary that it's being worked on? Uh, App, the human story? Yes. This is going to be that kind of stuff, you know, that they look at the actual independent developers, you know, the individuals who design apps, who make apps, or is this going to be like a couple of high-profile studios, you know, EA or, you know, King with Candy Crush? Uh, we don't know. It's probably going to be a little bit of both, hopefully. Yeah, I have all of those same questions. And the big question for me is that, like, if, if Apple's going to be tinkering with content then why not make something with broader appeal, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure that all of us are going to check this out and, you know, if it's terrible, not get very far into it. But, like, I just think about people who, like, carry iPhones. Like, are they going to be, like, interested in this? Or is it going, is Apple saying, hey, you know, maybe this won't be a super broad appeal type show and so we can really experiment with, like, creating content right like maybe they pick something that would be less popular than say something like a superhero show so they can kind of work the kinks out like i can see both sides of that but it just seems like such an odd way to get started and there's this there's this uh quote by eddie q in here saying this doesn't mean that we're getting into a huge amount of movie production or tv production or anything like that and mm -hmm. Um, that the company would continue to explore exclusive projects similar to the series about apps or its push into music programming. So, you know, this, you've got the Dr. Dre thing that's also kind of been talked about. Like, maybe they see this as more or less, like, a marketing push. Like, maybe it's not about creating TV, but it's about creating, like, marketing content to, to explain the app store and explain why their products mm -hmm. are best as the platform owner. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's it's not going to be a show, you know, about developers dealing with provisioning profiles in Xcode. I guess I think that's for sure. I mean, I would watch that, especially if it's like a thriller or a drama, you know, like House of Cards meets Xcode. That would be awesome. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be that. Um, and, you know, especially when, when you consider what Apple is doing with Apple Music, they're also working on a documentary series with Vice on the, uh, you know, the local music scenes. So Apple is doing a, a bit of um, uh, of these sort of series about showcasing what goes on in the, in the world of Apple services and Apple devices. Uh, so I don't feel like it's going to be a show about Lauren Brichter uh, creating pull to refresh, you know, <laughs> right. that would be, that would be awesome. I'd watch would, it. <laughs> yes, me too. Me too. Uh, but you know, sadly, uh, I think it's going to be sadly, I mean, maybe for my geeky perspective, but it's probably for the best, you know, if it's a broader appeal that, uh, you know, even my mother can understand, um, I feel I feel like it's gonna it's gonna do a favor to everyone if more people can understand what it means to make an app. Uh, that's the message. Uh, judging from this uh, article from the Times, which is you know doesn't have a lot of details, but the idea is it's gonna be a you know uh, a TV production for uh, the general audience to understand what it means to create apps and to sell apps on the App Store. Uh, that's probably a good thing, uh, but I feel like a lot of nerds are gonna say, yeah, you know, this is like uh, pop stuff, and we, you know, there's... Uh, especially with all the prob the technical problems with the developer community. I can imagine, you know, months from now, a lot of developers saying, yeah, Apple is making the big TV show about big apps and big games on the App Store, but, you know, where's test flight for the Mac App Store? I right. feel like that's, that's going to be the general reaction on tech blogs. We'll see. I mean, that's what I would write. So, <laughs> I mean, I see what you're saying about that, and I do think there's something interesting there of sort of explaining, like, who developers are, but I can kind of like see this picture playing in my mind. They're interviewing somebody and they start ranting about like uh, sales charts or the race at the bottom. And they're like, no cut, cut, you know, and like, uh, you know, like how, um, how honest of a picture can this be? 
um, if uh, if Apple's putting it together right, because you you do have these voices in the community that kind of call the App Store out for its issues and its problems. And is Apple going to paint everything as like a rosy, like uh, worldview, like this gold rush mentality? When really that's not what the App Store is anymore, right? The App Store has become highly competitive and full of garbage, quite honestly. And a lot of developers are struggling to find their place and make a living there. And so you can see this like this kind of going a couple of ways. Like if it is this like marketing push, like being really like a romanticized version of app development, right? You have your idea development goes really smoothly you have no competition you launch it you make tons of money and that's great well in reality a lot of apps aren't very good don't get popular right developers probably don't make their money back that they have in it in a lot of cases and they sort of move on right like like even the two of us like we're in a weird situation because we know all the successful people right but for every successful app on our home screen there are thousands of apps that have 12 downloads and that's it. So I just kind of wonder where this will land on that continuum of of what the app store is kind of actually like for a lot of people. That yeah. got dark. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Something to think about, right? I mean, yeah. Anyways, so that's a that's a thing, right? Like do you see, I mean, can you can you imagine a world where Apple is making like say something like what Netflix is doing, right? Like I just finished second season of Daredevil. Um, like I've watched a lot of Netflix shows that they've created. I watched a lot of Amazon Prime shows they've created. Um, obviously, Top Gear crew is doing a big Amazon Prime show later this year. Like, do you see Apple moving into that space at some point? I don't know. I guess uh, that it would make sense. Uh, you know, they've been working with uh, artists to make um, video clips for Apple Music. Now they're doing this kind of uh, TV series. I do see that happening. It's just kind of odd to imagine right now. Um, I don't know if Apple can do what Netflix is doing. You know, we had a lot of actual TV shows uh, with multi-million dollar productions uh, going on at once. Um, I don't know if I want to think of Apple as a content company anymore that I I think of Apple as a services company or a product company. Uh, I guess it makes sense. It's just strange to think about. It is. It is strange to think about. But like was it was strange when Apple started selling music, right? Like yeah, it was strange yeah. when the computer company started making a phone. Like I, I just want what I what I'm getting at. Like I wonder if this is like the natural evolution of technology companies to be to still be technology companies, but to have a content division. Um I just I just don't know. Like it is I agree with you, it's strange, but I also wonder if it's also somehow inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Anyways, something to think about. Um so we're going to get to uh, iOS uh, 9.3 woes. Um, <laughs> they seem to, seem to be a few issues going on there. Uh-huh. But, uh, but uh, first, we're going to take our second break and talk about Ministry of Supply. Everyday clothing should be smarter by now. It should be designed for the needs of a body in motion, not a static mannequin. We are all on the go all day, and our clothing should adapt with us. Because the only way we can truly feel comfortable is if our clothes are designed to work with our bodies instead of against them. That's the vision that drives Ministry of Supply, a performance professional menswear company that launched out of MIT four years ago. I just love it. It's so cool. Uh, They make polished business clothes that are engineered by MIT-trained engineers to provide technical benefits like body temperature regulation, sweat-wicking fibers to keep you dry, and stretchable fabric to allow you to move more freely. Now, Ministry of Supply, uh, their most tech-forward dress shirt, the Apollo, I love that's a space name, even their shirts have nerdy names, Um, they're made with a lot of really cutting-edge stuff, like moisture-wicking fibers that are infused with NASA-developed temperature-regulating phase-change material. This is what astronauts use to stay cool in space. They feature a a light-knit construction for breathability and a four-way stretch for mobility. Ministry of Supply even commissioned a research study by a university in Portugal that found it was 15 times more breathable than a standard, off-the-shelf, 100% cotton dress shirt. 
All of their clothes are easy to maintain and recoil resistant. You can wash and dry them at home, and there's no need to iron, which if you're like me, is a huge win. Uh, now, I've got a couple of miniature supply shirts, and uh, they're they're simply great. I don't have to wear a dress shirt very often anymore, but when I do, uh, it's my first couple that I go to because they, they always look good. I don't have to worry about ironing them, like I said. Um, they're just ready to go, and they look great. They, they fit really well, and I'm comfortable in them. Uh, regardless of the temperature outside. So you can find out more and shop online at ministryofsupply.com slash connected. And if you use the code connected, you'll get 15% off your first purchase and show your support for our show. And what's really cool, this is like my favorite thing. If you want to shop in person at a Ministry of Supply store, like actually go into a brick and mortar store, and you mention our podcast, you'll get 15% off your first purchase. And again, that code is connected. It works in the real world as well. So thank you so much to Ministry of Supply for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. So there's a, an odd problem going on with a, a bunch of odd problems. As I say, just one? <laughs> actually, a couple. Going on with iOS 9.3. One that's been apparently fixed. The other, it's kind of weird. So let's start with the one that's been fixed. Um, Stephen, you're the, the expert on all devices. Can you tell me what's going on with all devices running iOS 9.3? Yeah, so there's some sort of weird um, activation bug. Yeah. And it seems to be dealing with, like, not only, like, super old, like, iPad 2s, but also, like, the iPad Air and the iPhone 5S. It seems It seems like there's muddied waters here, but basically, you run an update and the device won't reactivate. <laughs> Which is problematic because okay. then it's just sitting there, right? <laughs> um, mm. And so this is really kind of like two issues in one. We got some links in the show notes. You can go read about it. Um, Apple has released an updated build of iOS 9 to deal with this. So if you have a device stuck in activation lock, you can plug it into iTunes and run updates and it should be okay. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's definitely concerning, right? Like there's always this thought in the back of my mind with old iOS devices, like, um, you know, how how does the new software run on them? And in this case, it doesn't run at all. So I guess they really swung for the fences there. Um, yeah. I feel bad every time one of these problems pops up because every time my friends ask about, you know, should I update to the latest uh, iOS versions? Uh, I'm like, yeah, sure, you should go ahead because it fixes bugs and it, you know, adds features and it's more stable. But every once in a while, my friends come back to me and they're like, well, thank you for that. Now I'm having all sorts of crazy problems. And every time I'm like, yeah, I know, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to do, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it seems like you know part of this is with like a signing issue with the 9.3 update. Um, doesn't seem like there's a ton, a ton known about this particular issue, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I don't even like run a backup before installing a, a point build of iOS, right? Like I trust the iCloud backup is fresh and... Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever had a problem. I mean, it really has been really smooth sailing until now. And, you know, so I think this may unfortunately kind of put a bad taste in some people's mouth, especially right if your iPad 2 is uh, yeah. locked out of, of use. But um, they seem to have gotten it fixed, unlike the other issue, which I think you're going to talk the, about. The other issue is uh, a problem with uh, tapping links uh, on iOS 9.3 with Safari, Mail, and also other apps. So um, this started last week. Uh, I started seeing these tweets from people asking me, are you seeing this odd behavior with Safari that you're unable to tap links and that Safari just hangs and it crashes? And I wasn't seeing the problem. And then I, 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 I began seeing more and more people reporting this problem. And it sort of uh, caught fire a couple of days ago when uh, a lot of blogs started, uh, over the weekend really, started to cover this issue. So in iOS 9.3, uh, some users are affected by a problem in which, uh, after a while, just out of the blue, uh, tapping links in Safari, Apple Mail, uh, other, other apps as well, uh, renders everything uh, non-responsive. 
So you tap a link, doesn't open, uh, the browser just hangs and it stops working and it crashes. Uh, a reboot doesn't fix the problem, uh, uninstalling apps doesn't fix the problem. So a lot of developers and smart, smart folks have done some you know, uh, digging into this issue and it seems to be related to universal links. So universal links is a feature introduced by uh, with iOS 9 that allows a traditional uh, link to a domain such as, I don't know, uh, let's say apple.com, to open in the native app instead of Safari. And it seems like some apps, uh, such as the booking.com app, uh, and 9to5Mac has a list of other apps, uh, some apps that implement universal links uh, are causing this issue for one specific reason. Universal links are, are based on this payload, on this file that contains the list of domains that should redirect to the native app. Um, and some apps with a very huge payload, so with this huge file, like a couple of megabytes, it should be a couple of kilobytes, really, uh, but apps that have a, a big, uh, you know, association file with this list of domains that goes over, you know, a couple of megabytes causes the problem for Safari and other apps when you're tap links. Uh, you should go to the universal link in the native app, but actually you're just hanging the system and it you know, rebooting doesn't fix it. Uh, and a lot of users are kind of, you know, it's, it's a problem because, you, I mean, tapping links is one of the, of the most obvious features on, a, on any device. So uh, I saw that there's a tutorial going around and it's like a crazy series of steps uh, that you need to follow to kind of fix the problem. You need to use iTunes, you need to put your device in airplane mode, you need to uninstall, reinstall the app. Uh, there's a link in the show notes uh, for those who are affected by the problem, kind of want to try their hand at this solution, which apparently is working because I saw quite a few people uh, saying that the, it's, a, it's a crazy workaround, but it's working. Also, 9to5Mac is saying that they uh, is reporting this comment from an Apple spokesper uh, spokesperson saying that uh, they're aware of the issue and they're working on a fix. It's not clear if it actually came from Apple PR or from Apple support on Twitter. Um, but, you know, word on the street, as the kids say, is that mm -hmm. uh, Apple is working on a fix. And I assume there's going to be an iOS uh, update. I also saw, quite amusingly, a few Safari engineers on Twitter uh, pointing people without actually commenting on the bug itself, but just, you know, saying, well, go to the, instead of putting hundreds of domain names in the, in the, for universal links, uh, use wildcards to avoid uh, right. duplication of domains. So it seems like it's a universal link problem and it, I would be surprised if Apple is not working on iOS 9.3.1 at this point. Uh, it's it's a kind of nasty bug, you know. So so let me see if I, if I've got this straight. So uh, an app basically has a file on disk, yes. right? That that on the server. Okay, on the server that uh, basically keeps record of the URLs that it watches yes. for, and if those URLs yeah. are hit, it sends you back to the app. Yes. Right? So the issue seems to be, at least with this bookings.com, which has been in a lot of these examples, that mm -hmm. that file is like crazy big. Huge, yes. Right, so the wild card would obviously be much uh, less data to parse and, yes. and much more efficient. I mean, it, it really seems like, I want to talk about the beta program here in a second, but this in particular seems like sort of like a crazy bug that mm -hmm. um, someone probably should have hit in the beta, but... It's one of those things too. This like, it's not completely within Apple's control, right? What third parties do. So Bookings.com wants to write this like terrible. Uh, I forgot how I saw. Um, I think Stephen Trout and Smith had a tweet about how big that file was. Um, third parties are going to third party, right? Like they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, so it's not completely within Apple's control, but at the same time, it's like Apple's going to get the blame, and they probably should have had safeguards in place that if someone had a file like this or some sort of um, like situation they're put in, like the, the OS should know how to handle it better. Right. Yeah, so. and it's not even it's not even uh, iOS nine point three only. I think I saw some people saying it also happens on iOS nine point two, iOS nine point one. So it's really a problem with universal links. It just popped up, you know, yeah. right after the iOS nine point three update. And I I think it raises a, another question, Stephen. Should universal links should deep linking be an option? Should it be a setting? Because I know a lot of people don't like universal I, I would links. Turn it, I would turn it off. 
See, <laughs> and and I feel like uh, you know we've talked for years about uh, the fact that Apple should provide a deep linking option on iOS that Apple should allow users to choose different default apps for opening links like uh, I want to set Google Chrome as my default browser for HTTP and you know uh, mm-hmm. web links uh, and it raises a question should this be an option at this point just make it a toggle in the setting and let users choose to enable universal links to enable you know a different browser a different mail application because whenever you know considering this bug, it's surprising that Apple didn't see it coming. It's also surprising that it wasn't caught in a beta, especially with the public beta. Uh, but it also makes me wonder if at this point it should be uh, not a half-baked solution as Universal Links, given this problem, maybe, but a full-on option uh, that uh, encompasses not just you know Universal Links and Safari, but any kind of link, any kind of default app on iOS. Uh, with an option, uh, you know, a lot of people would turn it off and, you know, they wouldn't have this problem, but also it would add complexity. So it's the usual trade-off, I guess. Right. Yeah, and the trade-off is always going to exist in a situation like this. I think my my feeling is that a lot of people are probably confused about the way that it works. Like, um, or I find it frustrating sometimes if I tap something and it opens in an app and then I would I left that app in a certain state, right? And now that state has changed because I opened something in TweetBot. Like, uh, so for me, like I just I find that I don't find them as useful maybe as as Apple thought that people would, and maybe that's just me. But um, I I do agree with you that the beta process should have um, should that should have been discovered, right? Like clearly this is not something new, right? These third party third parties have been using uh, files like this chock full of URLs, and mm-hmm. clearly Apple system whatever is parsing those or or respecting those rules doesn't work you know right like it, it crashes out um it's odd that this only came to light after 9.3 shipped and so yeah. i would have said oh well something must have changed right between the last beta and what they pushed out to the public they tweaked something and that, that may be true it may not be true i just i don't i didn't look at the build numbers but uh, if old <laughs> you know like you said 9.1 9.2 are seeing these issues as well like why is this coming to light now and um of course, there's always the um, the sort of like uh, copycat scenario, right? Like a, a, only a few people see the bug, but you hear about it online, and then it sort of gets magnified, right? People kind of come out of the works, like, oh yeah, I do have that. Um, and you know, I mean, how many people do we know who run into a, an issue with their device and just work around it, right? Like, how many people do we know who use assistive touch because their power buttons got smashed in, even though Apple had a repair extension program for it? on the iPhone five, like people just work around stuff. And so maybe this was out there. Maybe it was known by some people and they just sort of, now it's everywhere (laughs) accepted, right? Maybe they just accepted that's how it was. And they just, you know, maybe people in the public beta, you know, they put that feedback app on your phone, but like how many people are actually doing that? Like, I'd be very curious to know the number of people who are in the public beta versus the number of tickets they get to that feedback system. Like forget radar, right? Like, Put radar aside, right? People like you and I are going to use radar. Developers are going to use radar, but put that aside. People just running the public beta, just like, you know, above average users, maybe not even professional users, but they just want to see what's coming next, right? They download the public beta and like, oh, well, this will get fixed. And they don't, you know, they don't uh, follow through with it. Um, Oh, yeah. I'm seeing right now in the chat room... um Benjamin Mayo from 9to5Mac saying that the quote is from Apple PR. So there you go. Uh, Apple is working on a fix and is working with developers to fix this issue. I'm really surprised that it wasn't caught before. I wonder if, I wonder if maybe you know the people who test iOS 9 betas just don't use Booking.com a lot. <laughs> they don't need to make hotel reservations a lot. Right. It's and quite you, strange. And you got to think that there are other sites doing this, right? Like there, I think there are examples particularly egregious, but there's got to be other stuff out there that does this. And, and you know, maybe, I mean, clearly what happened is Apple never tested for it, right? That Apple never fed a file this big into that system and so never saw it implode, right? Like, I, I really believe if Apple had seen this bug, they would have fixed it, right? Like, I don't think Apple's the sort of company that, that lets something this big go by. But at the same time, like, there is some sort of problem here that it wasn't tested. You know, we had a, an email 
several weeks ago from a listener about uh, the QA process. And I find QA just endlessly fascinating. Uh, I did a good bit of it at my last job and, and just the idea of like testing for like the, the path that a user is going to take, but then also testing for all the variables. And, and my guess is that no one thought this was a variable, right? Like it wasn't tested for, it's still a problem. It still crashes the device. Like, um, this is something that clearly caught Apple by surprise. Um, and again, like that, that comes back to that QA issue. Like, is this something that should have been tested for? Maybe it should have been, maybe it's so odd that it didn't cross anyone's mind and that's fine. Like, you know, no one is perfect. Software has bugs, but, um, it just seems like a real doozy to, to land not only after the longest iOS beta we've ever seen for a point update, um, but also like at the same time with that activation bug, it's like a one-two punch against what otherwise mm-hmm. is a pretty solid iOS release. Yeah. This link problem, um, quite nicely encapsulates the the trade-off that Apple, you know, uh, encounters when they're starting to open up iOS a little bit more. Uh, you know, by extending iOS to be able to redirect any, any link to a native app, uh, the solution that they created, well, now you have a problem that, you know, if a developer abuses it, if they create a, an association file with too many domains in the list, it's going to crash iOS. Uh, you can make the argument that Apple should have seen this coming, and I do, uh, because or at least put some limitations in place to say your your file should not be bigger than X kilobytes. Right. Uh, but but really, the main the basic point is, in any sort of extensibility feature, uh, it's a, it's a it's a balance of providing more value to users, so you know more communication between apps, uh, fewer limitations. Uh, you know, when using an iPhone or iPad, but also if things go wrong, it's going to be a problem for the whole system. So by opening up, you know, links to behave this way, now you got a, pro- a problem with any link tapped in Safari or, or Mail. Um, so I, I guess this is the bigger picture is uh, the sandboxing model, for example, the big deal that Apple makes of the way that extensions work on iOS, that a problem with an extension doesn't crash the entire system. Now, with universal links, this is the opposite because a problem with an app is causing problems with Safari, it's causing problems with any link in any app that uses this technology. And, you know, it's a, it's a nice reminder that for any extensibility feature, there's, a, there's a, you know, the other side of the coin, which is quite ugly. I don't envy anyone's job to sit there and try to come up with all these parameters and all these angles into iOS that could cause problems, right? QA is hard. And, uh, you know, maybe someone did think, hey, we should put a limit on this. But I'm sure that some of it was done in good faith that someone who is running a site as big as bookings.com or, you know, these others, like, (laughs) would know better than to do their file the way they did it. And and so whatever happened, I mean, Apple's clearly going to get it fixed. I, I agree with you. I think 931 is probably imminent um and uh and you know the world will move on it's not the first time ios updates have had problems but it does feel particularly rough uh this time around having two of them back to back but it's uh you know it, i guess it is it kind of is what it is and yeah. um i'm glad that like i haven't seen i haven't seen any issues i assume you haven't either i think i would have heard about it you you've been good no problems uh i've been good personally yeah, I saw Ben Thompson on Twitter having the problem with the with the links in, in Google search in Safari. I, I just want to say, let's pour one out for the Booking.com person who got the call from Apple over the Easter weekend. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that was um, that was fun. I guess uh, probably not the adjective I would use, but um, <laughs> so yeah. So hopefully next week we can talk about nine three one being out and fixing these things. Um, and you know. Uh, Hopefully the beta program can kind of be more helpful in the future uh, with these things. But, um, but I think it goes to speak, goes, uh, to like the types of users who do the beta program as well. Like, especially the activation issue, like I would imagine there's not a lot of people running the public beta on iPad two, right? Like Mm -hmm. the people who run the public beta are the same types of people generally who are going to have the latest and greatest device. Right. And so, uh, you know, maybe there's some like weird vacuum there of users and, this was here all the time and they just didn't see it. Uh, obviously there was a signing issue as well that may have caused problems, but I don't know. It just feels like that beta program maybe didn't, 
do what I think Apple wants it to do in this in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Federico, I think that does it for this week. Do you have anything yeah. else? Yeah. No, you see, Mike goes away and iOS explodes. Mike, please don't ever go away again. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want if you want to find the show notes this week, a couple of ways you can do that. You can check them out in the uh, your podcast app of choice, which is streaming my voice to you right now. Or you can uh, look at our website. This week, the URL is relay.fm slash connected slash 84. You can get in touch with us there. There's a little email link in the sidebar. You can also find us on Twitter. The show is at underscore connected FM. You can find Mike, our fallen leader at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E on uh, on the Twitter. And you can find Federico Evatici. B-I-T-I-C-C-I, and he, he, of course, writes the wonderful MacStories.net. You can find me on Twitter at ISMH and at 512pixels.net. And uh, until next time, Federico, say goodbye. Arrivederci. Adios.